This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So thanks for coming on the show today. Yes, sir. Nice to be here. It's nice that you're in town and that all, all the stars align because you're master world traveler. Yeah, definitely. Angler. Moving around a lot the last two months or three months anyway. Yeah. Where you been? Uh, Nova Scotia, giant tuna fishing. Right. And then, uh, so I drove up there, fished for two months, and then drove back. You drove up there? Mm-hmm. And How then long did that take? It's 36 hours each way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good drive. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> it's a nice drive, though. I've done a lot of long road trips, but I've never done 36 hours. Yeah, that's a beautiful that's trip. That's a haul. Yeah. yeah. And then drove to Colorado and back the week after I got home. So Really? Yeah. You like driving. I don't, you went, that, I don't like driving, but you don't? I, I don't mind it if I'm going to do something. Mm-hmm. I just... I would rather drive long distance than drive around here in traffic. What? Well, yeah, it's getting bad around it's here. It's getting really bad. Yeah, it's not a small town anymore. Mm-mm. No way. No. So why are you driving? Just because you're hauling gear? That and I just I like to have my own vehicle. You just want to, yeah, yeah. You're not dependent on somebody else, and right. Um, I hunt when I'm up there too, so I have mm-hmm. my own truck. I can go where I want to go. Yeah. 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 That's cool. You good? Well, what was the last hunting trip? Was it the elk? You no, I went to Colorado mule deer hunting. Okay. Yeah. Did well. Caught. Well, I mean, I shot one, so that was that's all I was allowed. Yeah, that's but it. Just I'm because you know I'm just that's, one. that's that's an area that I'm looking to break into, but that I don't really, mm-hmm. you know, I'm supposed to go with this guy Andy Moyes one time. But <laughs> we can go anytime <laughs> you want. The um, so we're here today with um. How do I introduce you? Master angler, master hunter, Mr. Lure artist. Whatever. Lure maker. Lure maker. Fisherman. Right. So Andy Moyes, welcome to Connected by Water. Nice to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about 
a lot about like your lure making. Okay. Because a lot of people will see you as different things. Maybe you're like, oh, people know you more through hunting. People know you more through fishing. Um, you obviously have a storied career um, in both those realms. Um, where we relate most is I view you as an artist. Right. I, I really do. And, and maybe a lot of people don't look at you that way first. They might even just like you use the term too, lure maker. Mm-hmm. But there's an art to what you do, like most certainly. Um, and I always say that the three C's of design, are consistency, consistency, consistency. Mm-hmm. And that's seemingly what sets your lures apart than most, I think. They're would, beautiful, no doubt about it, but you got to get results. Absolutely. I, I would say you do artwork and I make working art. Mm-hmm. So it's yep. it's something that gets used as a tool, but also has to represent what you want it to represent. It can't just be a, a piece of garbage. It has to be quality. I believe anything you, you truly put your heart into to be mm-hmm. the best that you possibly can is always going to do well. Yeah. And, you know, my passion was being the best fisherman that I could be you know, competing in tournaments around the world, Um, you know, especially in a time when it was a lot of lure fishing only for big fish. Mm -hmm. Everyone says, oh, lure fishing's easy. You just throw it in the water and, you know, drag and snag it. That's not true because it's it's harder to emulate nature through a piece of plastic and get it to look right to fool that fish. Not only that, hooking the fish and keeping the fish hooked, whereas a bait— you know, there's an old saying that if you roll a rubber ball to a dog, he's going to grab it and spit it out. If you roll him a ball of hamburger, he's going to swallow it. Mm-hmm. And it's very true with a fish. I mean, it's if you have a good angler and you're bait fishing, I feel like my chances are in the high 90s percentage of hooking and actually catching that fish. Whereas on a lure, you're dropping down to 50% sometimes less but there's a lot of little tricks you can do to make that percentage go higher right and if you can do that just by positioning and hook placements and speeds and things like that um, i think it sets you apart from from the guys that are just dragging and snagging Mm -hmm. and to have a quality lure that runs correctly that's weighted correctly um, to where you're, you know exactly the position of your hook when that fish bites increases your chances, mm-hmm. I mean, greatly. And it's, it's I'm not going to say it's a lost art, but it's, I think it's overlooked, you know, the actual small things that make up the big thing mm-hmm. in lure fishing. You're replicating it, too, is... You know, you're, you're trying to emulate nature, and it's, yeah. it's not easy. So I got, um, so I've been marlin fishing before, but it's not, you know, my number one thing to do, mostly because I'm, I'm ingrained here. Mm-hmm. I'm so, you know, grounded here with the type of fishing that's done here. Um, so by no means am I, you know, an expert on talking to it. So I do have the question of if you're saying that there's more live hookups, um, if you have a better chance, you're like in the, up in the 90s with, with the bait versus mm-hmm. the lure, then why throw a lure are your chances going to be better? Like your opportunity is going to be more with a lure or is it, do you do it more for the art of it? No, the there's, it? there's, I don't know. There's a lot of different 
places that you can use a lure. A lot of guys will use it as a teaser with no hooks mm -hmm. um, because they can go faster and cover some more ground. And honestly, when it comes to blue marlin, you will get more bites on a lure or teaser mm -hmm. just because of the way it's running in the water. You know, whereas you have, you know, your sailfish and your whites, things like that are more apt to eat, you know, a, a more streamlined bait like a ballyhoo, something that's swimming along. That's just what they're used to feeding on is that smaller stuff. Whereas a, a marlin's attacking tunas and bonitas and things like that. Mm -hmm. So when you have a lure that's going through the water that's the same size or close to what he's eating, he's more apt to go after that. And then you can you can adjust what you're doing based on that, whereas you're going to teaser fish, and you can tease that fish, choose whichever rod you want based on the size of the fish. Then you can throw the natural bait and bait and switch them. Um, I would say 75% of what I make a year is in teasers. Really? Now. Yeah. There are places around the world where guys do still lure fish a lot, mm -hmm. but I would say the teasers have taken over you know, the actual lure with a hook in it. Right. And then, then you're just casting it out. Wow. Right. Yeah. Cool. Is that, what, how's Zach doing it out there? Zach's been, he's been doing good. Yeah, they, he's been, I've been, he's been posting a lot of good stuff lately. They had a good Madeira's season. Madeira's been kind of hot this year, right? Um, well, he's in Cape Verde Islands. Um, he did go to Madeira. Madeira had a great season. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were boats there that caught, you know, 50 fish in a season, which for there is amazing. Mm -hmm. Where you're talking an average fish is 500 plus pounds. Right. Um, you know, to catch a thousand pound fish in Madeira is, is really not a big deal. Right. Um, the Cape Verde Islands had amazing fishing, decent numbers, but the size of the fish were bigger this year. Were they? So you're not just dealing with, you know, let's say you had, you average eight or nine bites a day people would maybe turn their nose up at it compared to Costa Rica where, you know, guys are catching 20 blue marlin a day. But that's quantity over quality. When you're dealing yeah. with, you know, a third of your fish every day or five to 800 pounds, it's a big difference. Yeah, for sure. It's a you big know. difference on your back, too. There are the guys that want to catch <laughs> big fish, and there are the guys that want to release a ton of fish. So yeah. you basically. You yeah, know, some of those numbers in Costa Rica that they put out, like 60, 70, sailfish in a day like you know the sails that's that's a that's a common thing there you know to catch 30 40 sails 50 sails in a day um but the blue marlin fishing the fad fishing on the sea mounds is you know guys catch 20 and they they're like oh, okay we caught 20 blue marlin yeah. today it's just mind-boggling to me you know but then there's the guys yeah. that are catching 30 plus in a day so that's that's their their goal Mm -hmm. blue marlin fishing there now is that 30 in a day yeah you know I mean, you look at the guys and then like in mag bay right now that was insane with the stripe like 900 or something marlin i think that well in in a week yeah in a week mm -hmm. yeah but over 300 yeah. in one day they broke the record right yeah yeah Jesus. that was crazy yeah well there's a perfect example of um so the guys that that broke the record. There was a boat called the Game Changer. They caught mm -hmm. 300 something in a day trolling. Trolling. And then yeah. the, the bad company guys caught over 300 on, on, live, on bay. live bay, yeah. California style casting off the bow. It's, there's going to be controversy there. Like one guy thinks it's harder to throw live baits and catch them that way, you know, 
because there was a comment made about, well, we didn't even use a dredge or, or valley who. Okay, well, I'm not knocking either one of them because it's, it's a hell of a feat no matter what. Yeah, I mean, you're, um, <laughs> there's, there's ten times more work that goes into rigging dead baits, right, and rigging your dredges and fishing that way versus casting live bait. You know he's going to eat the live bait, right? I mean, it, you're you're in neutral, you're you're in free spool versus having to feed the fish trolling takes yeah, a little more skill. I'm not saying there's no skill involved in the live baiting. It's all a it's a coordinated team effort. Mm-hmm. And without that, you would never see numbers like that. Yeah. You know, people were saying, oh, it's impossible. That's a fish every however many seconds or minutes. It's very possible. Right. You know, I, mean, I remember one of the the best 90 minutes that I ever had in a tournament in Los Sueños. We caught 38 in, in nine, 90, in 90 minutes. minutes. <laughs> but that's that's a team. Yeah, for sure. That's five anglers. That's what boat was that? Three man was on the Pelisay. You know, and it, it can happen. Two hours of fishing, if you, if you really think about it, you break it down. Um, you fish all day there, you get a morning bite, slow in the middle of the day. I'd say 90% of your fishing happens in two hours. Mm-hmm. So you get these teams that are used to making things happen when they're given to them. So when they're biting, you take full advantage of it. They, It's not a big deal to catch 40 fish in two hours. Yeah, I um I remember when I was in um, Los Sueños and I was um just down there. I wasn't in the tournament, but I was mm-hmm. down there for the tournament. I just remember in like the last hour of the last day, it was just like madness. Like everyone was yeah. just going nuts. Like just boom, 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 boom. I think the numbers doubled. Yep. Like for the whole tur- for the whole day, and like in that last hour, there was that tournament. I remember talking to the girl that ran the radio, and she said I thought something was wrong with the radio because it went quiet. Yeah. And she said, I, I looked over, and a minute and a half had passed. <laughs> there was there was so many fish caught. That was the longest the radio was silent was a minute and a half. That's insane. And I forget what it was. Oh, they had to first, first through 15th place had the same amount of fish. And they had to break it down into tenths of seconds. <laughs> on time to figure out who was where because it was happening so fast. Mind-boggling. Mm. Yeah. What makes that fishery so phenomenal? Um, the amount of bait. Just bait. Bait. There's nothing to do with really like the current or the way the oh, shelf is. Of I course, mean, the current. It's more the, so the bait. Current affects everything. Right. Um, like even fad fishing, if that current doesn't pass by that fad if it moves offshore more those yeah. fish just aren't there they're just not there they're yeah. not there the bait could be there and the marlin could not be there and mm-hmm. the sails are the same way yeah but that upwelling that biomass of bait when you mark in bait that's 400 feet thick for miles because right. it just seems like that's like all that happens just on that perfect spot on yeah. this planet that's right yeah it's an amazing thing it yeah. really is just that biomass wow that's yeah. crazy so you've been making lures for a long time, right? Ever since you were a kid, right? So I started making lures in 1983, long before I'd ever caught a blue marlin. Really? And it was you making a, marlin lures. I was making everything yeah. because I yeah. was intrigued by the, you know, just the makeup of it. How did they, you know, you're, you're a teenager, you look at something, you say, "How's that made?" Mm-hmm. You know, like how did they get that 
the eyes and everything in there. I didn't understand that it was liquid at the time. And uh, my father was a boat captain, but he was a machinist before that. And, uh, you know, we had a lathe in the house and kind of machine shop set up in the garage. And he said, well, we can figure this out, no problem. We'll mm-hmm. make a basic mold, and yeah. then you can just turn your shape on the lathe and make whatever you want. Parental support's so important, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And it was... Uh, that opened my eyes to to so many things. I said, you know, I can be creative and start making all these things in the garage. And, of course, I made a huge mess, but... Yeah. Um, well, my brother shaped surfboards mm-hmm. when we were growing up. And, man, my parents gave him the whole back porch. And that, that like, we had to go to Home Depot and get one of those artificial turf rugs and yeah. throw them back on because so much resin yeah was falling all over the place all the time and it's it was just always like a mess but yeah i don't know if we have health issues now because of that <laughs> like the whole family like <laughs> well i remember using the the um clear casting resin mm-hmm. and it was it was so toxic I mean, yeah the smell of it i'd lose my taste i couldn't smell anything you lost your taste yeah really i mean there was times where i would i would wake up on the floor in the shop where I passed Come out on. from. Oh yeah, yeah, it was terrible. That's enlightening. You know? And then the dust and everything else, of course. Right. You know, you don't think about it when you're when you're young, but um, I got away from it because of that. Yeah. And it wasn't until years later that I started this new process, which is so much cleaner and mm-hmm. it's not a caustic material. It's not, you know, it's not an unhealthy material. So. That's why we always say that um, necessity is the mother. Not what I always say. It's a common phrase. Necessity is the mother of all invention. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. So I, you attribute probably a lot of that maybe transformational change to like the perfection of your work. I think probably you'd probably have to, right? So I worked with a, a plastics engineer for about six months to learn the whole process of the mold making and mm-hmm. using that material. And then the insert material is a different type of plastic. And then the actual resin is a, as a urethane, it's a ballistic stable UV stable urethane. Mm-hmm. And it was nothing like I ever dealt with before, you know, de-airing it, degassing it, working under pressure and heat mm-hmm. to make sure that it cures right. And, and weighing everything to the gram, it was to the gram to the gram and if you're over or under it changes the durometer of the plastic so you're either harder or softer i mean there's a lot of little variables to it and if you're if your timing's off you only have 15 minutes to work with it so you have to be fast you have to get it in tanks you have to pressurize it you have to put it in the oven and heat it and you know not a lot of room for error well it was an expensive I learning mean, yeah curve. i was gonna say i mean what the <laughs> hell did you go through to actually get it to the point where you're at now it a must lot. have been kind of a lot of waste a lot I, of yeah. yeah i ruined a lot of molds <laughs> just you, you must know. have been banging your head against the wall I mean, i'd have a, a friend come in and talk to me and i would pour both part a and never applied the catalyst and then yeah all everything's ruined because it ruined all my molds and it would just start over again. It was, yeah, but nah. worth it in the end. Now, yeah, it's good. It's good. It was. It's a hobby that's that's grown. You know, it's a. It's still a hobby because I can be creative. Mm-hmm. I still get a lot of custom orders 
right. from people wanting certain things. And uh, they'll ask, can you do this? I said, I can do anything. It's just it's going to cost you money, and it may take a little longer. Right. But you can pretty much do whatever you imagine. Right. So when you get a custom order, I mean, you're basically people are telling you, like, colors and patterns and different things. Colors, patterns, um, different insert materials, like right. mirrors, or maybe they want just pieces of mirror, or they want boat names. And yeah, like, the, yeah, all the cut, yeah. You never know what people are going to come up with. Just crazy Dennis stuff. Dennis logos. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. I mean, it's a... Uh, I've had... I've had people send me, you know, little plastic toys and things like that to put in it. And mm -hmm. you just... Really? Yeah. Yeah, you just never know. Is color a myth? I think color is... Um, does it, do you think it really matters or is it more like action? I think it's more the way the... The lure runs in the water. Yeah. You know, because I've, here's an example. I have one lure that all the guys at Fad Fish in Costa Rica love. Mm -hmm. It's this one size lure, one head shape, and 10 guys will order the same lure. But every one of those guys says it's got to be this color, and every one of them uses a different color. <laughs> so I think it's whatever you have faith in. Yeah. And whatever you feel comfortable using. Well, there's so many factors involved too, like, like we were saying earlier about current too. You know, mm -hmm. in the right place, right time. Yeah. You present them with a good action bait. Yeah. I mean, if it happens to be the right color at the time, then. I mean, I've. Yeah. When I was in Cape Verde fishing, I brought so many lures of every weird and wild color, mm -hmm. and it made zero difference. Didn't matter what the fish bit it, no matter what it was. Right. So. Personal preference, myself, anywhere in the world, if I had to choose, it would be something black. Something black. Mm -hmm. If I had one color to choose combination, it would be black black and green. Black and green. Yeah. Is that I, the one that Zach likes, or is that with the black and purple one? I haven't. No, there was one no, There was one that he made me put on his shirt, and he's like, oh, this is my favorite uh, lure. Now that's, see, now that's a black lure. That's right? a, yeah, that's right. That's like black and blue, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right on. That's cool. I mean, they're gorgeous, though. You know what I mean? Like I said, I mean, obviously, I'm not like a big Marlin fisherman. Mm -hmm. But I look at them, and I'm like, man, that's a pretty lure. Yeah. yeah. There's quality. Yeah. The um, mixing hunting in with all this. All right, I want to kind of talk about the hunting thing a little bit. How long have you been hunting? I've been hunting about 17 or 18 years. So, so a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you go all over. Have you been ever been hunting outside the United States? Africa. You have been hunting in Africa. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. You ever get up to Canada to hunt? I've hunted in Saskatchewan. I hunted in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. What's your favorite animal to hunt? Do you have one? I still think white-tailed deer is my favorite. Yeah. Just because they're so smart. Mm -hmm. They're difficult animals. They're not, not an easy animal to fool. Mm-hmm. Especially bow hunting where you have to get close. Right. It takes a lot of work. You have to pattern the animals early in the season and, you know, try to figure out where you want to be mm -hmm. when season does open and, you know, running your cameras and just really watching every move that the deer makes. And they still fool you. Mm -hmm. they, they just have a sixth sense and they'll do something so off the wall. Yeah. Their pattern will change the day the hunting season starts and they're, they're funny animals. Like they know. It's almost like they know. Yeah. yeah they're, 
They're tough. Bow hunting. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be the, like, probably, like, the premium way I, to, like, go after them, right? I mean, I, I, mean, com- I compare bow hunting to fly fishing. It's like a, yeah. you know, you have to get closer to the animal, you know, and then your scent becomes a factor. You have to mask your scent. So you have scent control. You have, um, you know, being a lot more stealthy in the woods because you're not shooting from 100 plus yards away. Mm-hmm. You're trying to shoot an animal at around 30, you know, 20 to 50 yards, let's say. Yeah. And uh, if they come downwind of you, I don't care what kind of scent prevention you use, they're, yeah. they're going to know you're there. Right. And Probably going to smell the scent prevention. You can, if they hear you, you can get away with it. If they see you, you can get away with it. But if a big buck smells you, mm-hmm. you'll probably never see them again. Never again. Nope. Yeah, they're just that smart. I always, I always say that I love um, going for bonefish mm-hmm. because it's like hunting. Yeah, you know, because you got to really be stealthy like that. I mean, that's one fish that spooks. Yep. So I always say that I'm like, that's one of the reasons why I love it so much because it's like being an artist. You always look at the fine de- detail of, the, of things. You know, I mean, you can go out offshore here and, you know. Hawk kingfish over the gunnel all day long, and you know it's fun. But to me, like that whole art and search of the the bonefish, or even like you yeah. know snook fishing, can be very similar to that sometimes too. But it's all hunting, you know. It's uh, imagine. So I lived in Costa Rica for twenty years, charter fish there for twenty years. You were in Haka, right? I was in Golfito, and then uh, at the end was in in the marina there in Los Sueños. But you go out into this water that's thousands of feet deep mm-hmm. you know especially when i lived in drake's bay or golfito there wasn't that many boats fishing every day and you go running out there so now you're hunting you have to look for all your signs mm-hmm. if you're marking bait on your machine and um you know maybe the difference is you're you're fishing early in the morning and you're marking all this bait deep and the other boats will leave and then you stay only because you know that in the afternoon those fish are going to push that bait to the top. Mm-hmm. And you can see it. It'll it'll be a progression throughout the day. It'll just get higher and higher. And it's it's the same hunting where you're you're just paying attention to your surrounding mm-hmm. and you're working a little harder than the next guy to make it happen. There's really no difference, you know, right. whether you're bone fishing or tarpon fishing or, um, you know, even sail fishing or barn fishing in a place where there are a bunch of fish because there is going to be times where there aren't a bunch of fish mm-hmm. and you're looking at the current you're looking at everything to decide where you want to put yourself to intercept those fish or where'd they go overnight mm-hmm. because they're moving those fish in costa rica most of the time they're moving 10 miles a day yeah they don't stop and then they're going to get yeah. to a point where they're too far away Mm-hmm. Now you're going to have to go back to the west or wherever to find the the next bunch of fish that's coming through. Mm-hmm. So it's constant hunting. Yeah. And looking at sea surface temps and looking at chlorophyll levels, looking at everything. And um, it's amazing because there's, I've seen it there where there's uh, this vast ocean of nothing, this green water, there's nothing. And then you look at your satellite imagery and there's a one-mile circle of blue water, and 
you know, you, you have nothing to lose, so you go there, right. and it's like an oasis. There's striped marlin and blue marlin and sailfish, and everything's in this one-mile circle of upwelling that had nutrient-rich, clean water, the right temperature. Mm-hmm. So It's incredible, I think, like, just I think that's from the time since we were kids to now, how much more knowledge there yeah. is with stuff like that. Absolutely. You know, like now it's like, I mean, so much shared information and so much experience mm-hmm. and then the coupling with technology. I mean, it's, it's really incredible to see where the sport is coming. We talk about like 300 Marlin in one day mm-hmm. and like mind boggling, but totally possible now because you, you have that kind of the roadmap for it. Right. Right. Which it's kind of cool to see, but there's gotta be a certain responsibility obviously to um, conserving that. Yeah. Um, and we always talk about how um, the people out there on the water, the guys doing it like yourself, you guys that make a living doing it are the most conservation conscientious people, you know, and, yeah. but sometimes might get a reputation for not being so obviously everyone's got their bad apples. Every group has their bad apples, but you know, pound for pound, you know, these are the watchdogs out there. Sure. You know, keeping everything like we talk about, yeah, 300 marlin in one day, like like tons of fish in Costa Rica, but they're all responsibly caught fish. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's circle hook caught fish, um, you know, lighter leaders, things like that. And people aren't just, I mean, there's always going to be people that do the wrong thing. But I think for the most part, you know, the everyone's pretty responsible. They want the fishery to last. They want it to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, the hunting is the same way without hunters, there would be no animals. There would be no right herd of animals from Africa to here. Mm-hmm. And there's, what did they say? There was 10 times or more white tailed deer now than when the settlers came. Right. Because of increased, um, agriculture, things like that, of course. But it's also responsibility of of managing the herd by the hunters, mm-hmm. you know, taking a certain amount of animals a year, the right animals every year. There are species of animals that live in Texas that are from Africa, mm-hmm. where there's actually more in Texas than there are in Africa from their homeland. And it's just because there's no poaching going on. Right. And that's the other thing that hunters help say in Africa Without hunters paying for hunts, that money goes to conservation. It goes to educating locals on poaching right? and conserving what they have there because a lot of the people just don't know or they're just desperate for money. Yeah, and a lot of people are very ignorant to the fact of what's really going on or, or what the culture and the society is like there. And Right. Yeah. I mean, people see a dead animal and they're like, well, how could you do that? Right. When it's, if they really looked into it, they would understand that the money that that hunter paid goes tenfold mm-hmm. and actually preserves that species. Right. And, you know, I'm not an elephant hunter. I'm not a, not that guy. I'm not interested in it. Well, I think a lot of people see that, that famous Jimmy John's photo and then it gives the rest of the whole of course. thing a bad, bad rep. Um, but even that, you look at, and a lot of people will disagree. Someone's paying a hundred plus thousand dollars to say they're shooting an elephant that is in a quota 
in a certain village where they're going to take that animal no matter what. Right. So do you do you let poachers take the animal, or do you let a responsible hunter pay a hundred plus thousand dollars, and all that money goes into to assuring that the elephants are still around? Mm-hmm. It goes into conservation. It's a hard thing, and it's it's tough because I know no one wants to see a dead elephant, but. Um, I just think it's a the necessary of two evils. Well, I think yeah, really. it's it's a controversial subject, you know, and I I get how people can get to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, there's you know. Well, you become emotionally attached with an elephant because yeah. they are super intelligent, right? Um, there are a lot of things that happen with elephants where one gets pushed out of the herd mm-hmm. and becomes a, a rogue animal and can do a lot of damage and you know raids people's fields and tears their village apart and right. So, I mean, it's, I'm not making excuses, but hunters definitely are here to preserve well, it's what, the same, what they're hunting. Yeah, and the same thing with the bears. You don't want to see it go away. Yeah. You know, bears in Florida, the same thing. Right. I think they're going to reopen it again because of the population explosion. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think they're these cute and fuzzy creatures and just watch the revenant. I don't tell you that they're not. What happens? You don't is, want one of those walking into your neighborhood. No, and what happens is, that if if an animal, a wild animal, is not afraid of humans, that's when you start to have problems. And the right. bears are not afraid because nobody's hunting them. Right. They learn pretty quickly when they're being hunted, not to come around humans. Mm-hmm. And when people start feeding bears in their backyard, and then the food's gone. The bear's going to come, and he's going to look for food again. And he's going to associate humans with food. Right. And that's what you don't want. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Don't feed, it, don't feed the animals. It's just don't like doing shark dives in the Bahamas where they're feeding the sharks. Yeah. You're seeing a— It's like they start—when they hear, they hear the outboards coming up, they start coming around. Boat, right? boat, boat means food. Yeah. And they're, they're primitive animals. They don't—that's just—they're programmed that way. Yeah. You know, any fish is going to want a free meal. And you can do it with just about anything from snappers at the dock to, you know, tiger sharks or whatever. You know, tunas. I remember you showed me that video one time with your hand feeding the bluefin. Yep, that's right. It was like rolling over these Volkswagens just rolling over the bait. They know that that the boat means food. Yeah. You know, I have charters all the time ask, well, don't you turn the engine off? I said, Why? At the end, I want them to hear the yeah, engine. They're, they're going to yeah. come to you. So, so all right. So up, all right. With the bluefin. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I haven't been up there yet. I want to go with you. We had talked about this before, but don't they they follow the, like the net boats? How does that work? So what happens is those bluefins come into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, right, um, and Northumberland Straits. Regardless, because the herring are there to spawn, the mackerel are there in huge numbers. I mean, the tonnage of bait there is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. What happens is with the herring boats, they That's start, the they boats, start yeah. their commercial fishery, and it doesn't last all season. But what that does, it sets the stage for these fish to move up onto these banks and, you know, any of the bottom structure that these herring boats are fishing on. And then once they're established... And those herring boats are finished, say their quota gets filled and they leave. Well, we're still allowed to have 
herring nets in the water for bait. Okay. And so basically all you're doing is just taking over where they left off. Right. And then those fish will stay. As long as there's bait there, the fish will stay. Mm-hmm. And you can just fish on your net every single day until the fish move on. How long were you up there for? Two months. You stayed there for two months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No need to. I mean, it's yeah. a it's a vacation for me. Mm-hmm. And it's just a place that I I like to be every fall because you never know what you're going to see. Yeah. You know, from white sharks to, you know, the tunas and everything else. It's just a, it's a pretty special place. Yeah. No, I'm dying to check it out. You have to, for sure. They go, are you, are you from the Bahamas originally? Mm-hmm. Right? You and Lisa, right? Yeah, from Freeport. Shout out to Lisa, by the way. I forgot <laughs> to do that right in the beginning. Oh, you should have reminded me. Yeah. So, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Your sister. So, sister. you grew up there in the Bahamas? Um, Where'd you grow up in the Bahamas? I grew up here. You grew up here. My you sister and I were born in the Bahamas. Um, spent a couple years there, a few years. Yeah. And then moved here. Yeah. So grew up on the New River in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. So you're born and raised here. Right? I, no, no, I was born in the Bahamas. I mean, I mean, raised here, born and born in the Bahamas. That's what I meant. Correct. Yeah. And then grew up here and was a river rat catching snook and tarpon. Mm-hmm. That's how we all start, right? Just kind of expanded from there. Mm-hmm. I started fishing with some people when I was a teenager with uh, actually Jimmy David and Freddie David, mm-hmm. Frickin' Frack and the LNH. Um, and then Jimmy and I actually went to Gloucester, Massachusetts in our early twenties and we're giant tuna fishing Just on, a, to, on yeah. a rod and reel boat there. And was like big eyes. They're all blue fins. All blue fins. All right. And then he and I started running the boat on the weekend by ourselves, And, um, yeah, it was, it was an experience. Yeah. It wow. Was pretty neat. So you were in your twenties when you did that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was nice. neat. Freezing your ass off. Yeah, it was it's summertime. It? So okay, it was summertime. It's not bad, but All it right. was it was the end of the, the cold, trolling era. Yeah. So we were trolling spreader bars of mackerel and squid and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of amazing bites. Just right. uh but it was tough. You think about it, a couple of kids out there, you know, competing with the rest of the guys, commercial tuna fishing. We were doing just as well as they were, if not were better, yeah. Yeah. A yeah. couple of South Florida boys. Yeah. Yeah. Showing how it's done. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, nice. You know, so to, to go from that, thinking that I was never going to see it again, mm-hmm. to going to Nova Scotia and actually seeing it again on a bigger scale was was pretty neat. Yeah, I'm sure it bring back, brings back a lot of absolutely lot of the old times or anything yeah. like that. And from there, you went to Costa Rica, though, right? So you run your own charter down there? I went to Costa Rica in 91, and... Uh, I went to help a guy with a fishing lodge there and ended up staying mm-hmm. and and working with them for 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. So you're completely fluent in Spanish? Yes. You're a Tico? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> it's funny because when I do speak Spanish, people ask me where I learned it. Yeah. And the first thing is Costa Rica. Yeah. They always say that. You, you got the, the There's accent. just the dialect, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh. It was good. It was, uh, you know, so from 91 to, you know, just a few years ago, I was there mm-hmm. at least fishing all the season. There's yeah. there years that I would leave in the slow time and and do all the Bahama tournaments and then St. Thomas and Venezuela. 
So have you, you've seen a lot of American influence down there, like mm-hmm. transform. Yes. Right. What was it like when it wasn't? What do you mean? What's what's the big change down there? So are we are we there for the better? You think? Ultimately, I think so. As as far as for the people, right? In ninety one, there was the airport was a open air metal roof building, mm-hmm. and it, there was people going there, but nothing like what there is now, and tourism is almost 80% of that country's income. So, you know, they realized, okay, we have this great natural resource and it's a two hour flight from Miami and yeah, easy to get to. Um, For instance, the place that I worked, there was no airstrip. Mm -hmm. There was no road in there. So you had to fly from San Jose on a puddle jumper, take a two hour taxi ride through banana plantation take a two-hour boat ride down the river, come out this river mouth with sometimes a 15-foot swell breaking across it, Mm -hmm. and go five miles across the bay to get to the lodge. It's a lot different than... A lot different. The hour-and-a-half car ride from San Jose Airport is now. There was no electricity. It was all generator. Yeah. Now you go to that same place, and there's an airstrip. There's a road in... There's electricity. Mm-hmm. There's million dollar homes on the hillsides. Um, s- some places, I I don't think it's changed for the better, but it's given the the people more opportunity to become a middle class. Mm-hmm. Because before it was it was rich and poor. That was it. It was cut and dry. I think the country has has taken care of their people by adding a service charge on on bills and restaurants and things mm-hmm. like that maybe a little too much with the terrorist tax mm-hmm. and you're like talking 23 percent, i think or more now yeah it's on everything you spend it's a lot yeah, it's a lot but uh who, who knows i mean i don't know if the money goes back into right you know building roads and there's corruption everywhere though if i had it yeah. my way i I wouldn't want to see billboards and everything else on the side of the road in Costa Rica. I think it would lose what it is. Well, they're there. Yeah. No, but I'm saying it's like, I mean, if it gets even more and more yeah. and more and more, I think it would I just think kind so. of completely lose like the whole point of going yeah. down there. You know, all the Burger King and Taco Bell and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's not why you go there. Yeah, exactly. I just, I just don't like that. You, I mean, the people are wonderful. People are great. I mean, I, I have... I'd be hard pressed to find uh, a nicer crop of people that I've ever come across in my lifetime than the people of Costa Rica. Absolutely. I mean, they're really, they really make you feel like you're at home and they want you to be there. And, um, th- I don't think that I ran into one person, you know, in any of the times that I've been there that that's really kind of given me any kind of like, Oh, American, you know, like that. No, because I, I think they, they know the importance of having, Mm-hmm. People visit their country, yeah, and spend their money. I'm sure, there. it's got a lot to do with it, yeah. And there's always going to be, you know, yeah, there's always going to be bad somewhere. But in the grand scale, I think they're happy to have people there. Yeah, they really are, and they go out of their way to show you a good time. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. So here's a good one to go go into, um, like how. In Costa Rica, for instance, all around the world, how going to Circle Hooks 
were huge in yeah. conservation there because I, I remember fish tournaments there, J hooks, and you would see hundreds of dead fish. Yeah. 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 And now you may see one or two, but right. out of the thousands that are caught during the tournament, you don't see fish floating. Yeah. Now it's rare to, I mean. And I think that's been accepted and it, it's a better system. Yeah, accepted everywhere around the world. Yeah, I think um, you know now if like if if you if you end up harvesting a fish by accident or something like that, it's kind of like a much rarer now than um, if you, if than it was before. Absolutely, kill a lot more fish back then. And you know, we had um, Art on recently to talk a lot about you know some of the stuff that he is involved with with the South Atlantic. You know, fisheries management council and all things like that and there are some good you know a lot of good regulations um being put forth with like the, the blackfin doing a thing right and um uh, which i agree with you know i don't think you need to have you know thousands of blackfin tuna you know there's no need for that no um you can't really want to refrigerate that like as well you know so it's you know but the circle hook you know the evolution of the circle hook it's so important now to the fact where it's like, I can't remember really the last time I fished with a J hook. No. Like, you know, no. I'm th- trying to think back and it's just, now it's just so commonplace with the circle hook. That's right. And it's so important. Yeah, it, you know. It's more effective. Yeah. It's, uh, granted, there were some changes that had to be made, you know, as far as rigging bait. And I think that's what discouraged a lot of guys early mm-hmm. was be- they didn't know how to rig a bait or they didn't think the bait would swim or now. A circle hook bait will swim better than a J hook bait, for sure. And it's faster and easier to rig. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but you're saving the you're saving the fish really. I mean, you can fish the the fads there in Costa Rica and catch a blue marlin. He may have five or six circle hooks in his mouth. Mm-hmm. So you know it's not affecting him the way that a J hook would. Yeah, you know, whereas it's in the eye or down the throat or in the gills. I mean, it could happen, but it doesn't happen very often. I think that's one thing that has really kept that that bunch of fish in Costa Rica so healthy, that whole mm-hmm. ecosystem of fish so healthy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when you're catching the 60, 70 fish a day, if, mm-hmm. if that's all done on J-hook, that's you're gonna catastrophic. Have, there's gonna, I remember the early tournaments there, there would be, you know, hundreds of fish floating on top. Oh. It got gut hooked. Yeah, and you, you know that's when people really started saying, "Look, you know you can't you can't just keep doing this because it's going to affect these fish. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a change. No different than the blackfin tuna. Or right, you can only mismanage a species for so long before you start to see the effect of it. Yeah, and hopefully the change gets made before it's too late. Right. You know that's why it's important. I think that people on these councils are people that are actually out there all the time rather than like, you know, Absolutely. scientists or environmentalists and people that really aren't nope. experienced in the field, nope. in that field, the water, you know. Look at Red Snapper. Yeah. Perfect example of yep. over management. Correct. And mismanagement as far as commercial balance versus recreational balance. And it all comes to, it's all money. Mm-hmm. And there's only a few license holders in the Gulf of Mexico for commercial Red Snapper. Mm-hmm. And they're all either, you know, lawyers or government officials that have these licenses. They can catch as much as they want, but the recreational guys were the 
big money really comes from, they're only allowed two fish a day, and their season is so short. Yeah. It's not worth them running their 50, 60, 80 miles to go catch two red snapper. Right. Yeah. And meanwhile, there's there's so many red snappers in the Gulf of Mexico that you almost can't catch anything else. Yeah, I never understood the whole – I mean, DeSantis just made a change to that too, which I know he that guy does a lot of good for, yeah. for these things. But, you know, I'm happy to see, you know, at least that done um, and, you know, him putting people in the positions – that they need to be in. I mean, I think one of his first actions as governor was just like, water council, water. Going, all you guys, see yeah, you later. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That's the big thing on this show is connected by water. It's like, right. cause it's so important. It's the lifeblood of everything that we deal with. It is. Like even hunting and fishing, like the water quality Fra- in the hunting. Fresh and salt. Yeah, doesn't matter what sure. it is. Doesn't yep. matter. From the top of the mountain to the bottom of the ocean, it's all affected by the same thing. And if, if you ruin one part of it, it affects the other part of it. Yep. And it may take years and years to notice it, but it does affect it. Yeah. Uh, Flip Halp recently had a nice little write-up about the Everglades. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it will ever get back to the way he was writing about. Um, I hope it does. It would be nice. I mean, we have a little bit, I think. One of the biggest things I think that affects all of that is, I mean... Even more so, not more so, because I don't want to defend the sugar guys like that, but just sprawl, urban sprawl in general and runoff and everything like that. And just people, just impervious surfaces and concrete just creeping into those areas. Absolutely. I mean, it's just so much a factor as the sugar. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, there's an issue. I mean, you look at, it, say you go... You go sail fishing off the beach in, you know, as close as Delray. Mm-hmm. And then you go sail fishing in Miami. They're both pretty strong. Mm-hmm. They have good numbers of fish. You get to Fort Lauderdale, and we always joke about it. So there's a tunnel that they swim through. Yeah. <laughs> because something happened, you know, in the last 20 years where the number of fish that I don't know if they go offshore to mm-hmm. avoid the water or what they do, but we just don't have that same, those same schools of fish passing by here in the depth of water that they should be. Yeah, it's a you weird know, thing. There's a few days where it, where it gets pretty and they, they do come through, but that fishery in Miami is super strong. The water's and, clean. And, and the fishy, yeah. fishing up north, Palm Beach, everything north is super strong. And then you get right here. Mm-hmm. It's got to be, you know, all this stuff that's dumping out of these rivers. and Yeah, it got to be the water quality. It's got to be. Because we're not pressuring the fish any more than they're no. being pressured up and down the coast. Oh, no, I mean, less. Yeah, exactly less because no, people know not to fish there now. Yeah, there's less. And, you know, you look at, I remember going to the balls <laughs> off of Dania Beach and catching pilchards. Mm-hmm. And it was easy. They were everywhere. You could go there at any time and catch them. You could catch goggle eyes. Mm-hmm. In the port, mm-hmm. you catch threadfin herring in the port. Good luck doing it now. Yeah, you, know, you have to go to Miami to catch bait, or you have to mm-hmm. go north to catch bait. That tells you something. Yeah, and without the bait, those fish have no reason to be here. I think it needs to be looked into. Yeah, I mean, if the science, the scientists, and whatever want to look into something. That's probably something that you want to look into. Yeah, more than you know, angler affecting 
you know, an area. Absolutely. You know, because I, I think that idea got shut down real quick too. I was talking to Skip Dana about that where he's like, all right, we had our meetings and there was a pretty good council and they're like, they thought it was this and they thought it was that. And like everybody could completely shut down that idea of like making the no fish zones on the reefs and the, the things that they were, they right. wanted to do. Yeah. We're like, that's not the problem guys. Yeah. You know? So we're going to shut this down right off the bat. And they did. And I hear Art was alluding to that too, that they're trying to raise it up again. Yeah. But I don't know why. I mean, I think, you know, you got to listen to the people that are out there all the time rather than the people that are holding posters. And, you know, they're not, it's funny because the, a lot of the scientists, you know, the data is the data, but you can't count fish. Right. They try to think they can count fish and come up with an estimate, but, you know how fish are. They'll do things no different than a big deer. They'll do things that you least expect them to do, mm-hmm. and they'll just rebound. Right. Let's take swordfish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great example. When when we started nighttime sword fishing again, you know, I remember when I was younger. There, oh, there's no swordfish. You can't even go out there and catch one. Mm-hmm. And then the guys that I was working for, the older guys, said, "Man, we used to go. It was easy. You could catch swordfish any night you went." And they, you know, it was all long lining and, you know, the, the damage that the long lining did in the Straits of Florida. I'll never forget the first night I went, we caught one, about 300 pounds. And there was a couple guys doing it. We're thinking, okay, well, maybe these fish are coming back. Mm-hmm. Well, they said that the stock was 90% depleted. Like on the verge of complete collapse. And more and more guys started sword fishing at night. And then there were longliners still fishing then. Mm-hmm. And then they saw those guys get phased out where they couldn't fish in the Straits of Florida. And you started catching more fish, more fish. And it only took about three years. And yeah. I remember them saying, the swordfish stock is 100% restored. <laughs> okay, well, we all know that. <laughs> Right. That didn't happen that fast. Yeah. I think those fish were there the whole time. They just come and go. Mm-hmm. And, of course, long lining pressure definitely takes its toll on those fish. It does. Right. On, on everything. The well, sharks. pressure and, has a lot to do with it. It's pressure. Because you, know? so, you see it in the bonefish estuaries where it's like if they're pressured too much, they're gonna they're just not going to come around. That's right. And, you know, you were talking about blackfin tunas. People, ah, it's just a blackfin tuna. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, it's just a kingfish. But if you take too many of anything, it's going to hurt it. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt it. It's going to take years for that to re- to rebuild, especially if you're taking certain generations of fish that are your bigger breeder fish. Mm-hmm. You know, now you have this generation of small fish that need to catch up. And the same thing happened with bluefin tuna in the Northeast. You're targeting this... Okay, well, it's got to be 72 inches to take. Mm-hmm. So now you're taking these 72 to however big fish. You're taking a whole generation of fish out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Or you're depleting that that size of fish to a level where it takes them years to rebound. Right. And, you know, you're talking of fish that lives to be pretty old. Mm-hmm. and But they do grow on an average about 100 pounds a year still to be sexually mature and mm-hmm. and 
to to breed and to have everything going again for them. It takes time. Yeah. And you're seeing it now. In the Northeast, the tuna fishery is stronger than it's ever been. So you're seeing the numbers. That's great news. And I mean New England. Right. In, in the bay, mm-hmm. in the pond. I mean, I had a friend that was striped bass fishing there and came up on a school of pogies. And, you know, thinking striped bass have them all rounded up six feet of water. There was four bluefin tuna had them surrounded in six feet of water. So, right. It's strong. It's it's coming back. And I'm That's good. Most of that is because of the bait. You know, they've they've cut back on all this, you know, huge pair netting and catching all the squid and catching all the bait. And if there's nothing to eat, those fish will go somewhere else. Right. So, so a lot of times, I mean, it's really kind of more so regulating the commercial aspect of it and keeping a better tab on that than it is like the recreational. I think recreational can, can do their damage as well. I mean, it's okay. Especially like bottom fish. Yeah. Groupers, Mm -hmm. things like that, that, that take time to, to grow. They're not a fast growing fish and they're not really a schooling fish as much. You can definitely wipe out a fish like that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, it's a good example. You know, they're not... A red snapper's a pretty fast-growing fish, mm-hmm. and their numbers are huge. I mean, when they reproduce, they reproduce. And the problem with red snappers is that they eat everything. Mm-hmm. So now these guys in the Gulf of Mexico can't catch a trigger fish because they're eating all the small ones. Mm-hmm. And they're eating all the small fish of every species. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying, too, about... Um, now the hunters and the anglers, the managing of those mm-hmm. areas is actually beneficial Absolutely. to the conservation of it. Yeah, I mean, if you went, here's an example. I have a friend in Texas that has a ranch, 6,000-acre ranch. Mm-hmm. The state expects him to kill 150 deer a year mm-hmm. to keep the numbers under control. And people, I've had people just turn around and look at me like I'm crazy. 150 deer, are you kidding me? And I, I say, okay, well, if you have 200 does, the conditions are good. They have water, they have food, they have shelter. They're going to have twins every year. So in a span of a couple weeks, now you have 400 deer. Yeah, it's exponential. I mean, granted, coyotes are going to get some, some will mm-hmm. die. But even if it's one per doe that survives, you still have 200 deer almost overnight on yeah. your property. So you have to make room for the next generation to come up. But if you if you didn't manage those deer, mm-hmm. what happens is the the younger ones, the smaller ones, they're not going to have as much food. So you're going to see the size of the animals get smaller because their food's being taken away from them, and you're also going to see uh, starvation. They'll create what they call a browse line where you'll see everything eaten browse line? a browse line everything will be eaten as high as the deer's head can reach and then once they can't get to that anymore mm-hmm. animals start to suffer so you really have to manage animal animals for the food situation mm-hmm. and what the land can support you know that's the whole reason of, of predators coyotes and and everything else being there so if say you're doing uh predator control on a ranch where you're where you're shooting the coyotes and you're shooting the predators that eat the fawns and eat your turkeys and now you're responsible 
to be that predator that manages the number of animals on your yeah, that's land. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's no different in the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, take, for example, what they want to do with the shark, the commercial sharking right now. I think that we're going to start witnessing, you know, a heavy rise in population of sharks if we haven't already. Yeah. You know, it's already kind of a little bit out of hand. Mm-hmm. And now it's going to get even worse. Yeah. And it's funny because it's it's certain species of sharks, like bull sharks, mm-hmm. that you never saw these numbers before. Right. There were some. You know, they were the ones that kept everything in check. But the West Coast, like you talk about Everglades, you know, Chukaluski area, all that. Mm-hmm. I remember fishing all those shallow wrecks there. You never had a problem with sharks. They were around. You never had a problem with a Goliath grouper eating a snook or a permit that you were fighting. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's out of control. Yeah you, see it. yeah, you see it all the time, though. I mean, if the shark doesn't get it, the Goliath grouper's getting it. Mm-hmm. And that's everywhere from there up into the New River now. Yeah. Yeah, it's... And, um, and it's, well, I, I think, think it's overmanaged. They're trying to sell it as, like, the shark fin thing, mm-hmm. but there's it's more than that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, you got to regulate these things. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's going to affect, obviously, commercially, it's going to affect it, but um, from a tourism aspect, it probably doesn't yeah. have a good, no. you know, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, you know, a lot, we have enough, bad enough, you know, shark population, and a lot of people don't realize that Florida is, you're more likely to get bit by a shark probably here than any, anywhere in the world. Yeah. Well, just because of the sheer number of people in the water and, you know, up and down the coast, there's a lot of sharks here. A lot. Most of them are, you know, not dangerous sharks, but you get in the middle of a school of bait and the shark's going to see your hand splashing or whatever and mistake you. It happens. Yeah, it happens. More often than not, yeah, the shark's going to bite you on accident. I mean, if you're spearfishing, say you're in the Bahamas, you're spearfishing, you should almost expect Mm -hmm. to have an encounter with a shark. And it's really not the shark's fault that he's there. Right. Because he was there millions of years well, ago. Well, you can't fault what he is. I mean, he's a predator. Yeah. And exactly. you're, ta- you're taking his food from him and you're right. also feeding him at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd do know. the same thing if I were him. I heard guys go, oh, I'm going to go to the Bahamas and we're going to start bang sticking sharks because a spear fisherman got bit. Okay. Well, yeah, you know that's like me saying I'm gonna I'm gonna go around and start shooting every spear fisherman because, you know, he made the shark bite him. Mm-hmm. You just can't do it that way. It's not gonna solve anything. I mean, I understand people get upset. A, a girl gets eaten by a shark. It's horrible. Right. But you have to look at what led up to that. Mm-hmm. Is it doing shark dives and feeding sharks that makes them comfortable around people? Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, they know food. That's it. Right. So I think everything has to be managed. I agree. Responsibly. It can't just be, you know, let's just kill a bunch of these, kill a bunch of those. You really have to look at it. And I think you're right. Fishermen should be the ones that they're talking to, Mm -hmm. you know, because they want it to be there. I want the fish to be there. Yeah, we all want a healthy ecosystem. Of course. So, you, know, just, you know, nobody wants a barren wasteland out there. You know, even everyone thinks, oh, commercial fishermen, they're just out to kill everything in the ocean. That's not 100% true. There are guys like that. There's guys like that. But a responsible yeah. commercial fisherman, that's how he makes his livelihood. Right. And if there's nothing to catch, then what good is he? 
And if you look at um, all the bad things that the whole sugar runoff and the phosphorus runoff has done in the St. Lucie River and a Mosquito Lagoon and all that, uh, which is it's horrible. And everyone's like, wow, is Mosquito Lagoon ever going to make it back ever? Is there going to be going to be a time? You know what I mean? And But who is it saying that? Who is who are the people? It's the fishermen. Yeah. That are the ones that care the most. Yeah. That are the ones that are like, how did this happen? It's the fishermen, the captains for clean water guys that are the first ones like, you know, talking to DeSantis and like, we got to do something about big sugar. And, you know, it's, it's the anglers and it's, it's the hunters on the forefront of protecting these lands and protecting the value of the species. And, you know, and, and it's not just because they want to have fun with them, you know, or they, they want to continue their sport. It's, I think they just genuinely care about the entire atmosphere of, you know, you the species and the animals and the land and, and just all of it. You know what I mean? I don't think a hunter just hunts just to kill. I mean, I think they have an appreciation for all of it. I don't yeah. think a fisherman just fishes just to kill. It's just no. the appreciation of the sea and the life. And we talk about it all the time that this isn't a fishing show. It's a community show. Right. You know, it's, it's about the culture behind it all. And there's a lifestyle to this. Right. And, and there's a lot of pride that goes into conserving that. And I think that's really what it stems from. Yeah, I mean, it's not just about mutilation and just it is annihilation. A, it is a lifestyle. It's uh, and it affects people on all levels. Mm -hmm. You know, you think, oh, you're just a, a sport fisherman, or you're just a commercial fisherman, or you're a guide. You know, or you you take people hog hunting, or you're a, someone that takes people deer hunting. Or you have an operation here or there. If you and like so many fishermen hunt so they can relate to both sides of right. it and vice versa, or they're at least aware of what goes on, on, on both sides. I think that's why I like to hunt mm -hmm. because it was a different aspect for me. And it was also something that I was educated on by someone else. You know, I looked at right. it and it was like learning how to fish all over again. Yeah, but then once I really saw what happened and how much goes into it and how much people really do care mm -hmm. about what they're hunting, you know, you're not just there to kill it. Right. The hunt is what leads up to you actually killing it, and then what you do with the animal afterwards. You're not just leaving it there to rot. Mm -hmm. You're being responsible. You're harvesting the animal. You're you're eating the meat. Um, you're not just some guy that goes out there and shoots a bunch of animals and leaves them on the ground. Right. That's what Nugent talks about all the time. It's like, man, you think hunting is bad. You know what I mean? No. Just stop going to the deli. That's right. Because you're paying someone to do it for you on a daily basis. That's exactly right. You know, and you, you bring up the good point about, you know, because, you know, I'm not a hunter. I mean, I've been gator hunting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I actually, I want to start hunting more. But as a fisherman, I have an appreciation for sure. what goes into it. You know, well, alligators are a perfect example of yeah. of harvesting a certain amount of animals yep. per year to control species. Correct. You know, there was a time where and you, those things are ruthless. Oh yeah. Sorry, there was a time. I have no mercy for those things. <laughs> well, let's see people look at it that way. Oh, he's ugly. I'm I'm fine with her. A wild pig. Oh, it's ugly. And they see a little deer batting its, you know, black yeah. eyes. Yeah. They uh they think oh it's too cute. Well. Cows are kind of cute too, you know. And right. People people don't see it, so they don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. But if they actually saw 
where that stake started. Correct. They may have a different outlook on it. Or ended up. And I like to know where my food comes from. It's a much more humane thing. You it know. is. And you know what? A deer that was running in the woods, you know, that millisecond before he died mm-hmm. is a lot happier than an animal on a farm. Right. There's no doubt about Getting it. Getting prodded. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're all guilty of buying meat from the store. Of course. You know what I mean? But, you know, if, if you look at it from that respect. Yeah. I think I think a lot of the the world has lost touch with their food mm-hmm. and where it actually comes from. thousand percent. Yeah. Have you ever watched that show Rotten? Oh, I did. On Netflix? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. that, that'll make you want to just do everything yourself. Yeah. And I do. I don't. I eat. Probably 90% venison. I don't, mm-hmm. I hardly ever buy any meat. Yeah. Just don't do it. Yeah. And I feel better doing it. Mm-hmm. I feel better as a person doing it. And I know where it came from. Yeah. I know it's organic as it can be. You know, everything's organic. It's a pretty loose word, but, you know, you want to say free range, you want to say organic, you want to say grass fed, you want to. Yeah, it's right. basically all of those. It's as wild as it can possibly be. Right. And natural. Yeah. I know. I mean, for, from a fish aspect up, you know, I try to never really eat fish at a restaurant unless I know that restaurant, yeah. you know, and I know the people that own the restaurant. And I know where the fish is coming from and everything like that. But if I'm just in some random place, especially a chain, I'll never order fish. No, no way. I mean, I have enough of it in my freezer as it is, That's you know, it. that, yeah, but. It's a tough one because the the demand for it is so huge around the world. And I just think it's it's the most bastardized type of food in the world. Mm-hmm. From shrimp to whatever kind of fish you're getting. Right. Where they're gassing the tuna to make it more appealing to people to have this pink color instead of being red like it really is. To, yeah. I mean, that that's insane. When I saw treating that. it with chemicals yeah. and right, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, and I mean, for people that that don't have the opportunities that we have to like really catch their own fresh fish and really cook it, mm-hmm. like you got to taste the contrast. Yeah, to that. I mean, it's not just taste for value of saying, "Oh, this tastes better." I prefer it. You know what I mean? It's just from a health standpoint and even right. a conservation standpoint. It's just like this, that's just the right way to eat a fish. Yeah. You know, I know not everyone has that opportunity, but sure. I don't know. No, I think it was interesting to see, um, to hear about when they just made that recent mutton change, um, to, was it up to 18 inches? Mm-hmm. And the reasoning behind it, um, was that, and it was obvious and everyone's like, oh yeah, once they found out, it's like, they completely agreed with it mm-hmm. where that's, that's the period where, you know, most of them are Make, born. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we'll absolutely increase that to two more inches. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It wasn't really about just increasing the limit. And fishermen were on the forefront of making that decision. Sure. You know, and we seen the numbers increase. Yep. You know what I mean? Very quickly as, as a result of that absolutely. change. And I think we're going to see it increase even more. And you probably see a lot more buttons get caught. But there's so many little things like that, you know, like hogfish. Mm-hmm. Making the size a little bigger. Give yeah. those fish a chance to to get bigger and reproduce and I, people complain about it at first, but then when they see mm-hmm. what really happens with it, they're going to be happier because every time they go to, you know, shoot a hogfish is going to be bigger. Right. Um, example in Canada, they increased the 
carapace length of their lobsters one year and said they have to be however many, you know, centimeter bigger, millimeters bigger. And a lot of guys were up in arms about it. Oh, well, you know, you know, this is going to hurt us. And he said, well, it may next year, but the following year. So they have two sides of lobsters. They have canners, mm -hmm. which are the small ones and they have markets, which are what they sell live whole. So what happened the following year was after those regs, most of the lobsters they caught were markets and they get more money for markets. Really? So they had to catch fewer lobsters. That happened in a year? A year, yeah, of course, because yeah. they, they grow pretty fast. Yeah. Um, most of the lobsters they caught were markets, so they made more money on less lobsters. So now you're preserving the species by not taking as many to mm -hmm. make the same money every year. It's pretty smart. Yeah. You know, and like the snow crab, they'll, one year they'll cut the quota in half if they see the size getting smaller. Mm -hmm. And then once they see the size come back up, they're getting bigger, they'll double the quota. So you may lose one year or two years, but you're going to make it up. So they'll ever morph that. Yeah. That ruling. That's good. That's a good way to manage it too. It's a great way to do it. Rather than just saying, this is it, this is what it's going to be forever and mm -hmm. we're done. That's right. You know, but that, that's a really good way to management, and that's responsible management. It is. Yeah. I'd like to see maybe some more of that here. Yeah. You know, management like that, yeah. where it's more fluctuating. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's a type of animal that you can really pinpoint their growth as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, fish, sometimes it takes people a while to realize mm -hmm. how old they need to be to, to reproduce or where that where that size is that needs to be a snook is a great one. Redfish is a great one. Yeah. The slots. Yeah. Um, you know, the groupers and snappers and stuff, they they have a pretty good handle on it. Mm -hmm. They just Mahi management might be an important thing too. I mean it is and everyone you know, everyone says, Oh, well there's just so many of them and they grow so fast, which they do. But do you really need to kill a hundred if okay. you have ten people on a boat? Mm -mm. You really don't. Mm-mm. You know, and now the charter boats are not allowed to sell mahi anymore. Right. Because they were saying they're commercial or however it overlapped or whatever. But I don't know if that was a, a great idea or not. Um, but I, I think they need to be managed as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to take the numbers that people take recreationally. No, there's not really. I mean... And how many how many times does that get frozen and thrown away? Right. You know, especially yeah. in the mahi. Yeah, it's all you fun know. until you have to start cleaning them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's, the, That's thing. the thing. It's like, oh, you're going to clean that many fish? That's no thing. thanks. No. I'll take two, and I'll see you later. Yeah. I'm good. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Especially if they're bigger fish. There's, there's right. no reason for that. Yeah. You know? And then everyone's, oh, well, they weren't that big. Okay, well, then let them grow up. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be taking them if they're that small. Yeah. It's tough to throw back a mahi too. Everybody but. wants, but everybody wants what they feel they're entitled to, right? You know, if there's a limit, well, like I have to get my limit, right? And you're here, you're always hear people say them. that. Yeah, yeah, we got we got our limit. Yeah, it's tough to leave a fish biting. But you might be a better person if you were a couple under your limit. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Sometimes it's okay to leave them biting. Of course. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. You know, and those are always the people that complain when they're not there. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Yeah, exactly. Where's all the fish? <laughs> yeah, well, if, if you yeah. didn't take 50 that day. That's right. Yeah. So. Cool, man. Awesome. Andy, thanks for coming on today, brother. I really appreciate you coming out. Nice to be here. Yeah. And um, we're going to end this like we usually do, like my buddy Mike G says, your ego is not your amigo. Just do your best and let God do the rest. Always remember to eat, drink, and be local. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we are always connected by water. Thanks, Andy. You got it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dennis. Mm-hmm.